Welcome, friends, to another edition of Swampside Chats, the podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're on the forced march with another Patreon subscriber-chosen episode topic. We read chapters 3 through 5 of Richard D. Wolff's Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, from 2012. You too can force us to read something of your choice. Find out how at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. Not one step back, comrades. Well, I think we all got some thoughts about this. Hungry like the wolf. That's good. (laughs) Dean Wolf. Okay. According to Cornell West, this is required reading. And according to Noam Chomsky, uh, Richard Wolff's constructive and innovative ideas suggest new and promising foundations for much more authentic democracy and sustainable and equitable development, ideas that can be implemented directly and carried forward. A very valuable contribution in our troubled times. Um, you know, that's, uh, those are two of the big, uh, the biggest you know, far leftists that can get onto NPR who uh they're endorsing this guy and i for the life of me just get the feeling that this dude is mostly a grifter (laughs) and uh that he never actually presents something that is as practical or clear as he seems to indicate uh in this text i can basically sum up the richard wolf experience in a very simple thing because he is very similar to david ike when you listen to him because when, when I listen to David Icke, I'm always I'm on board for most of when, when he's talking. He's like, you know, there's a set of elites. A lot of them are pedophiles. They've been ruling over our society for a long time. And they're intergenerational reptilian <laughs> vampires, right? That's when he loses me, right? That's the turn. <laughs> the thing is, this is the point. The mainstream media has accepted that those characters, those same characters, lied about Iraq but will not question in any way the same people's version of 9-11. They're journalists. It's their job. But do you still think the royal family were shape-shifting lizards? Yes, I do. You do? Yes. And you also want us to believe 9-11 is a conspiracy. But if you also think that Buckingham Palace is inhabited by lizards, it kind Uh, of undermines But it's not that simple. So when you listen to Richard Wolff, it's like, you know, capitalism's bad. It's a crisis of the system. We need alternatives, and it's going to be worker self-directed enterprises, right? (laughs) That's the turn. Workers' cooperatives is the way to transform the work process, and in that process, transform ourselves as human beings. And he basically presents this concept of the worker self-directed enterprise and says that these will be the things that we're missing both in actually existing socialism and modern capitalism and would have been the basis to a worker's paradise. Am I wrong? Somehow it's an economic model, it's a revolutionary strategy, it's nonsense. It's the magical solution. One fix all, you know? It's like sham wow. (laughs) I got the same vibe from this that you get from Maurice Brinton, the, the Bolsheviks and workers' control guy. He basically critiques the Bolsheviks only from the standpoint of how much management the workers had in the enterprise and completely isolation from everything else that's going on. And he basically acts like, you know, the solution to all the problems was just workers' management 
over enterprises and ignoring how when this was attempted how it failed and how there are just issues in the technical division of labor itself that make worker self-management not even an option in some cases. So the whole idea of worker self-management as a panacea should be critiqued very heavily and Wolf is a good foil to critique that standpoint. Well, here's the problem, right? In this very book, he spends most of it basically critiquing the political problems that allowed the capitalist economy to sort of develop the way that it has. Like it is a very it is almost, you know, maybe what Kleiman would call a politically determinist reading of the present situation. But after all of that, like pointing out like just how inept the politicians are and so on and so forth, somehow he gets it into his head that Obama is gonna set aside billions of dollars for worker self-directed enterprise. Like, what? Like, why would this system that has basically forked over endless money to, like, these bankers who criminally mismanage the economy, why would he suddenly turn around and do, like, this basically implicitly communist uh, political project? The same reason that Lucille thought that Bismarck would just turn around and, like, implement socialism in Germany. Yeah, like, Rosa nailed it on the head, literally LaSalle's program, that we will use state taxpayer money and we will use the party to basically make the state form workers co-ops and that will be the path to liberation through the state i haven't actually disagreed with almost anything anybody said but i'm going to put this framework out there that we got this request from a listener named steven hi steven no you're right we can't piss him off he's an important (laughs) listener we can't afford to lose him he asked us to read chapters three through five and steven asks us to specifically focus on the pedagogical value in those chapters of this. In other words, how good of a popularization of theory are these chapters? And so knowing what I know about Richard Wolff, and yes, I did know about all this like worker self-directed enterprise, like panacea stuff, but I think for the chapters that we were asked to read and for the value that we were asked to judge, uh, Richard Wolff does a pretty serviceable job of offering what amounts to something like a counselist critique of the 20th century in a way that's, as somebody put it, altusser for grandmothers. It's incredibly accessible. It gets across the idea, unfortunately, through state capitalist language, which I disagree with, but it gets across the idea that what was called socialism in the 20th century was actually two forms of extractive class society and that it wasn't actually socialism in any meaningful sense. That's like, Rudolf Barrow does a way better job on that question. Like, that's not a unique take from leftists. Could grandma read Rudolf Barrow? I think that there's way better critiques of Soviet despotism than Richard Wolff. Before doing this episode, I binge-watched, like, a bunch of his lectures and I realized he has almost the same tone of voice that I would get in my special ed classes. <laughs> I know that sounds really dumb, but it's the same sort of like everything is sort of really simplified. Right. Everything is conveyed right. in sort of these sort of simple little metaphors. He has a tone of voice that's almost kind of s- oddly soft. I, I, It's just like I got the feeling that I was in one of those like special reading classes that I was with like five or six students, but for Marxism. 
I use this as simple analogy. If you wanted to understand a family down the street, uh, mother, father, couple kids, and one kid thought it was the greatest family ever, and the other kid said mm, it was a disaster. If you wanted to understand the family, you'd want to talk to both kids. It's not a question of which one is right or wrong, but you want the understanding of the celebrator and you want the understanding of the critic. Marxism in the way that Marx wrote about it, is the analysis of capitalism from the perspective of a critic. And I think we would only be better off if we had followed a little bit of that, so we would understand better the problems of capitalism. We would handle them a bit better. If you understand how the New Deal was incorrect and was a, a capitulation to the capitalist class, then you can go over and use the Flintstones phone. <laughs> well, this is what I would say, though. Like... For example, Stalin's text, we talked about the pedagogical value, and it's perhaps an easy text to read, but it just gives a bad framework through which to conceptualize scientific socialism. And I think that the problem with Richard Wolff at a pedagogical level is that he just offers ideas that add more confusion than clarity by offering a false alternative, and in my opinion, a false understanding of class struggle, which is kind of basically, he sees that as almost like this power struggle between classes in the hmm. worst sense. Because I think that, yes, the class struggle is a political struggle, but that requires the organization of classes and the parties and the development of the classes and the form. It, you know, it's, it's more complex than just this kind of idea that there's this elite that's able to use their economic power to rob the majority of society. And I see a kind of almost like Sorellian type of a view of class struggle here. He kind of just throws managers in this the same class as the bourgeoisie and makes concessions of this idea that, you know, it's a coordinator class oppressing people. And I don't know, there's a lot of syndicalist kind of deviations here. He doesn't say there's a coordinating class. No, he doesn't. But what he's making sense of is the fact that most modern capitalism, based on weird surplus division and like rentier dynamics that don't really fit in the old like industrial capitalist model. And this guy is a popularizer. What he's doing, and in the, the tone of voice that Rose is talking about, and just his whole affect, is something that a lot of speakers do but i think we are perhaps too cynical for <laughs> like yeah no no i mean look here's the thing like a lot of people are fucking stupid and they need to be talked to like the children that they are but oh, so for the love of god <laughs> i mean there's a reason why he got specifically popularized through lefty poll you know that hell for yeah it's okay to call people stupid he's repackaging marxism for the democracy now left mm-hmm that's who this is for. And I think a lot of those people probably are... Like the boomers. Boomers are fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> seriously. I think kind of when we grow up as a nation, it's time to look at that part of the way capitalism works that is understood by the critics. And Marx was just a critic, that's all. So you don't think what happened with communism was Marxism? I mean, you don't think we already discredited that system? Because my theory, and of course, again, I'm not really a professor of economics, <laughs> although I play one on TV. Yes. <laughs> is that human nature is greedy. Well, I think what happened is that people got excited about Marxism and took it in directions that we don't want to go in again. We have to learn from that. No, I mean, it's for people who, like, shop at small businesses and are, like, you know, buy local and shit like that. Because there is kind of, like, a Sammy Petty bourgeois aspect to this where he basically, you know, wants people to 
you know, basically become their own exploiters. And that's the problem here. Like, okay, he does have a crude kind of narrative that he's telling to sort of explain the, you know, various maladies that particularly like, you know, lefty minded liberals would be concerned about. But I mean, anyone can do that. Like Baba Vakian could probably give you a pretty good broad story about why everything's so shitty. That's kind of Marxian, right? About Maoist China. Yeah, but he, and he's going to tell you some fairy tale about working at a fucking co-op. Yeah, exactly. And I was reading some RCP material because there was a debate between, um, you know, hear me out. There was a debate between Albert Szymanski, who was a Soviet defensist, and Bob Avakian, who's a Maoist, who was anti-Soviet and pro-China. And it was actually headed by uh, Enwar Shaikh. And the Avakianist, you know, he lays out this whole vision of how the Soviet Union is just an extension of the totalitarian nature of capitalism and all this stuff. So, I mean, like, yeah, I'm like, Bob Avakian can do this. Like, the RCP can do this and actually probably tell more interesting Are they stuff. more accurate? Because here's the thing. I think in terms of systematic accuracy, okay, if you feel like that he distorts the theory of class struggle, like, I think that he gets exactly at the primary class relationship at the heart of all the modes of production throughout historical materialism, he's doing it through this Althusserian, post-Althusserian, even post-structuralist way of looking at class, which is a class structure, which isn't a mode of production. It doesn't have the motor force, right? But it is focused on surplus extraction. That makes his class analysis so important because he is actually doing Marx's surplus critique, drawing out the main concept of historical materialism and of Marx's theory of capitalism. Like he's making okay. that appeal popular. That's all. Class is this difference between those who do the work, the overwhelming majority, and those who gather the profit into their hands. The way our society splits up the output leaves those who get the profits in the position of deciding and figuring out what to do with them. And we all live with the results of what a really tiny minority in our society decide to do with the profits everybody produces. Okay, but he's taking that and he's basically telling people that the workers should keep all of their surplus and then they will, for vague reasons, give it to the people who are like, what did he call them? I think he called them like the enablers, I think he says. Yeah, which, which establishes basically. this weird division of labor that's just so antithetical to the communist project. I have a quote. Can I read this quote? Please. Yeah. We are now ready to tackle a particularly thorny issue in the analysis of an economic system based on WSDEs. This concerns the division of employees of every WSDE into two groups with different relationships to the production and distribution of the surplus. The first group comprises the workers who produce surpluses and who also compose the board of directors in WSDEs. They are the workers who directly produce the outputs of the WSDEs, the software programs, shirts, buses, machines and so on. Every WSDE also employs another different kind of worker who provides the conditions and ancillary services that enable surplus producers to function. I will call these workers enablers. Enablers include the secretaries, clerks, receptionists, security guards, 
cleaning staff, and so on who maintain the paperwork and physical spaces that provide the necessary conditions for the first group of workers to produce a surplus. Other types of enablers include managers, lawyers, architects, and counselors who provide still other conditions. I don't want to say that there's no delegation of authority in communism or the free association of producers in Marx and stuff, but I see no interest in withering away the bureaucracy here. There's just something really insidious. The problem is, is he makes a classic syndicalist error that the bureaucracy is something that's basically there because of the will to power of the bureaucrats and not rooted in the actual division of labor as it's organized by capitalism and even the forces of production themselves. And so there actually has to be a transformation in the relations and forces of production upon which to actually devolve this division of labor. And it's not just something that's maintained through the force of the managers and their ability to... That's what I mean by saying he kind of sees class struggle in the syndicalist way of like the bosses versus the workers at the point of production and everything else kind of is a structure design around that. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. Like that's the problem with even the good parts. There's a planners and a planned for here in this socialism, it seems. Grant, actually, as far as this is concerned, what we're dealing with is essentially a productive, reproductive labor division, more or less. We're dealing with social reproduction versus production of surplus. So that's something that every society that produces surplus has to deal no, with. No, but it's a ridiculous, like, we're trying well, to break the down the mental manual division of labor. And it seems like he's not thinking at all about our need to transform what it means to have a job, which isn't this yeah, weird, exactly. centrally dictated rotation of professions that he comes up with here, but like it's everyday administrative powers are being taken up by the workers in a way voluntary. that starts undoing their categorization as proletarians over time. This is all true. For communism, all labor needs to become skilled and voluntary, essentially. What he's talking about would be, you know, a nightmare of a version of socialism. For me, when I look at something like this, as I look at most, quote, market-oriented socialist solutions, is visions of what a dictatorship of the proletariat could be. Like, we're going to have to have some kind of transitional form of capitalism and some kind of self-management on some level and then, like coordination on another level is going to have to happen. Like there's going to have to be some concept of quote workplace democracy quote within a capitalist setting. Oh That's yeah. It's going to be the starting point for a socialist transformation. So I'm, I'm totally on board that this isn't communism. What it doesn't have is exploitation quote self exploitation is just not the same thing. The thing about exploitation is that the exploited classes of history, they don't get S they don't get the surplus. They don't get to have any say in how it's spent. They don't have control over it. And if there's going to be anything like communism, you have to figure out how to give the traditionally exploited class S. You have to figure out how they command S. I'll say this. That was the one thing that I thought was correct by Richard Wolff, is he says any society with expanded reproduction is going to have to develop a surplus. 
So you have to make it so that the direct producers who develop this surplus are not alienated from the surplus. And the problem is, in Soviet capitalism, as he calls it or whatever, the direct producers are alienated from their surplus because they don't have worker self-management. But he doesn't actually look into the question of like the planned economy in a broader sense. Because you can have worker self-management in a market economy, but have people still be subject to the forces of the market itself and then that itself leads to exploitative conditions like for example anyone who's worked at a co-op knows that often the capitalist division of labor ends up reasserting itself because of the force of the market right here's another problem right he basically says that worker self-directed enterprise and he needs to think of a better acronym because that's just that's that's a mouthful terribly unwieldy these things can work equally well in state capitalism, which is his word for really existing socialism, and regular ass capitalism. But the problem is, if you are producing for exchange in a market, you have to produce commodities roughly in a way that will be competitive with the price of similarly produced commodities on the market, which means you have to produce them in a similar way, which means that you're probably going to have to have work conditions similar to that of regular ass capitalist firms. And the thing that he points to, the one example of maybe really existing worker self-directed enterprises are Mondragon. Oh, yeah. The Spanish like federation of different like co-ops, essentially. But even those places have had to hire outside labor who were not a part of, you know, the whole co-op system and were making lower wages. So if you look into them, like it is a real problem for his solution because it has to operate in these conditions. And I think at the end of the day, his argument is that workers, when faced with those management trade-offs, with those like trade-offs that capitalists would normally have to do, will make different decisions, which I think is true for the short and medium term. But in the long term, I think ultimately, if capitalism persists, they will make the, quote, right decisions. And, and I think that's exactly what ultimately... The whole problem with an economistic, you know, workers' self-management starting point is like the idea of making a co-op being the praxis, the way that you practice politics. That doesn't make sense. Like I appreciate him thinking about it, but to advocate it as this is what we do. Let's start the next Mondragon. You know, that is something that's kind of weirdly petty bourgeois. It kind of reminds me of, like, ergoism, you know, of that? Hmm. No. It's a weird libertarian thing where they're like, hey, you know, in order to destroy the state, we need to create a black market economy. We need to create alternative economics that undermines the foundations of the state. You know, you just invest in Bitcoin and you buy your heroin and your child porn and your pot and state will just fall down you know because we won't need it anymore this is kind of like the socialist equivalent to that this is the left-wing equivalent to that it's like hey you know if we get these cooperatives going if we get them strong enough you know we won't need capitalists we won't need the capitalist class really we'll outcompete them in their own game that's a thing too what i was looking for here was okay he wants to start these things but like what kind of industry would be a good place to start them, right? Because there are probably some places where you could have these kind of firms, like I would imagine maybe breweries would probably be a good place to start. 
but he never really suggests anything. The closest thing he says to how they would actually start to get implemented would be some kind of program coming from the state. Yeah, that's the weird Lasallian aspect comes from. But the problem is, it's like I said, if you actually want to socialize production, you have to actually transform the labor process itself and transform the mental manual division of labor. And this will require, you know, a process of social transformation that will be a lot deeper than what Richard Wolff imagines. To his credit, he imagines it. All right, but he sees the problem as basically just a question of nationalization plus worker self-management. But he doesn't understand how you need to also develop the economy beyond that enterprise in a way that allows for society to have control over production. Like, just having the workers be in control of factories that visits their own property just creates divisions of production. You would still have anarchy in production because, you know, you would still have competing enterprises just competing in a way different from the dynamics of a capitalist market. And you saw this in the Soviet Union. So wait a minute, does he advocate nationalization? I mean, what would he prefer? Like, the market? Yes, he may be more of a mutualist or something. He makes it clear that he thinks the state should fund these co-ops. He never makes it clear, I mean. It should basically be like his version of a jobs program. Right, he does want a jobs program. And there are places that have this. I forget if it was Italy or Spain. It was probably Spain that actually has laws like this. So I think that for him, that's probably a big appeal. But then he has to explain like why those don't qualify as worker self-directed enterprises. He basically sets up what a WSDE really stands for is socialism in one jam factory, you know, socialism in one brewery, one computer repair shop. If you can't see the absurdity of that, I mean, I'm going to take a moment to step back here and, you know, just just say that, like, co-ops aren't necessarily bad. No. In tandem with other things, the idea of having, like, state-backed cooperatives and things like that wouldn't be that bad in a transitionary society. Absolutely not. I don't think it would be that Absolutely bad. not. It, yeah, I agree. And uh, I saw someone make a good point in arguing about cooperatives that if you have serious class struggle of a political party backing it, militants at the front of class struggle who really initiate and take leadership in industrial struggles will often get blacklisted at a certain point. And so the Socialist Party or the Communist Party or whatever could provide them with an employment and some kind of cooperative. Cooperatives, I think, would basically be how you would have an infrastructure for the party. And Marx compares cooperatives to unions in the sense that they're both organizations formed by workers that negotiate the wage-labor position, but at the same time, they reflect workers collectively coming together as a class in order to mitigate the effects of capitalism. So it collectively organizes the workers by their existence, and so therefore the party needs to develop a relationship with these organic organizations of the working class, even if they're not perfect. Oh, right. Well, that's the thing. Like, here's the problem. It's not that he advocates for co-ops. I'm for, I like co-ops. I'm not against co-ops. But he basically pretends like he has this thing that will transcend, like, the internal contradictions that co-ops carry with them existing within capitalist society. And he just hasn't. So calling these things, like, Worker self-directed enterprise is like calling like the Soviet Union like communism. It actually, I mean, it isn't. It 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 it, obscu- it obscures and mystifies like the contradictions that underpin the trajectory of the society and make it more difficult to really understand it, fix it, or change it. I think you kind of have to read between the lines with Richard Wolff because 
when he describes that he wants these sort of democratic networks of workers self-directed enterprises, and then he describes the political system that would accompany it, which is a sort of directly democratic town hall-ish system, and then they would democratically work together. He's selling the structure of the early Soviet state. Like the thing that he's describing in abstract, he's not making this clear, but he wants factory councils basically, and he wants Soviets. That's the kind of view in the abstract that he's putting forward in a way that many Americans would find unobjectionable because they're not thinking about what they would have to do in order to get there. Yeah, but the problem is, is that I think the whole model of like factory councils and Soviets running the state is actually flawed. Right, right. We can debate the wisdom of that model, but what he's trying to do and what I think the councilists and some of the syndicalists are trying to do more generally is answer the question, you know, what would be the forms of organization appropriate? for proletarians. And he's not saying this that much on a political level, which is what McNair does, but he is saying on an economic level in a kind of loopy way, trying to fit it into the nadir of class struggle today when most of Marx's dynamics are obscured by weird managerial stuff. I'm all for like a party, you know, setting up co-ops and working class neighborhoods and, you know, using those to politicize people and directly helping people. I'm all for, you know, things like that. I just think the problem is he sees a transition to socialism through this quantitative development of cooperatives. So like at a certain point, like the whole economy will just choose to become cooperative because the state will fund a cooperative sector that will outcompete the private sector. But I think that it really underestimates the importance of central planning and how actually workers control isn't true workers control if you still have the market. And you need the balance of the needs of an individual factory if it needs a society as a whole. Like I don't think individual factories should be able to determine the course of society based on their size. Yeah, exactly. You know, the whole idea of running the state through factory councils is just absurd in my opinion. I think that Bored Ega <laughs> actually has a very good critique of this and makes a very convincing argument in some senses for why the party is going to be the main form of organizing society in a revolution, even if he fetishizes it. Yeah. Well, it gets to a weird part where he talks about, you know, the engagement with like the broader community and how on the board there have to be representatives who are outside of the employment of this institution. And then he just assumes that they'll be willing to set aside taxes like voluntarily for education and stuff like that. But I could see it, you know, within a market situation, I could see these firms being very selfish, especially if it starts out with workers, you know, having full control over their surplus. If they 100% like own that surplus themselves, like, you know, you could make them basically be, you know, the new bosses of the community in a bizarre way, you know, and then everyone else is basically has to be supplicants to them. Capital is basically a big polemic against the idea that socialism equals the worker having the full access to the value of their own labor. Capital? Yeah. Because I think it's critique of the Goethe program where he really makes that clear. Well, he makes that point there, but if you read Capital between the lines, 
I think he makes that point. He's arguing against Ricardian socialism. Uh, I think there's a reason that people read Capital in a Ricardian way, especially because it was only volume one. All right, well, this, this is a whole other argument. But from, <laughs> from my reading of Capital, from, from what I get from it, I see it as a critique of Ricardian socialism and Proudhonist and Lasallian ideas of socialism. He's critiquing the idea that the panacea of socialism is that the worker gets rewarded the true value of their own labor. Because he points out that any society is going to need to produce a surplus. And the problem is, is that this surplus is controlled by a class, alien and the producers. And so the, the key is to put this surplus under the control of society not put the surplus in the hands of the individual workers as property. The point is, is to make this surplus exist in a way that's controlled by the interests of society as a whole and not against society as a whole. Yeah, but not against the individual for the most part. Like, you, you're right that in some levels, on some time, it's going to have to cut against it. Well, some factories may have to make sacrifices and some workers may have to engage in reskilling programs and there may be right. facts where what's a fair way to adjudicate these the things the fact is though that this whole idea that the government's going to be a federation of industrial cooperatives is just it's not how a government that actually meets the needs of society as a whole would function in my opinion yeah you have to have central planning like that's how you sort of overcome all of like the different metabolistic problems between man and nature i could see it being firm-centric leading to this deep-seated conservatism similar to the conservatism of like american trade unionism well i think it's important to look at when the bolsheviks attempted workers control and i think people act like they never actually did but the truth of the matter is workers control started happening as a spontaneous movement before the bolshevik revolution and the bolsheviks basically thought that with their direction workers control could be used to bring the economy out of a crisis because the economy was in a crisis because of the war. And so Lenin had this kind of semi-anarchist idea that workers' control could be used to rally the masses to restore economic equilibrium, basically. And so the Bolsheviks basically attempted this twice, and both times it really didn't have very good results. It actually resulted with the Congress of Factory Committees arguing for the trade unions to become the new power and for nationalization of enterprises to be introduced because workers control wasn't actually solving the chaos of the economy created by the war what happened was a lot of times workers would treat the factories as their own personal property and even try to sell them off to go buy land to live off of because food was scarce and so this solution of workers control just doesn't actually function in the way people would prefer it to be, especially in the context of a market society. And I think that that's why I'll you know, defend nationalization sometimes against workers' control, because sometimes there are like emergency situations that can't be solved by relying on the workers in a particular factor to do the right thing. Syndicalists, because they see socialism as defined by the power of the workers within their own workplace over management or the lack of management, they see socialism as basically being worker self-management, and they see that as the sheer measurement of what socialism constitutes. So some syndicalists are open to market relations even existing as long as there isn't a hierarchy within the point of production. And I kind of get that from Wolf, to be honest. So there is a point where he comes upon an interesting notion and basically argues, you know, these existence of these, 
I'm just going to say co-ops because that's what we're really talking about here. Yeah, seriously. Uh, <laughs> with co-ops could basically link up to like the labor movement and let me see if I can find the exact passage. The arrival of co-ops would change the classic struggle over enterprise relocation between labor unions and left parties on one hand and on the other, capitalists demanding maximum freedom from state interference with their relocation decisions. With co-ops, there would be ongoing demonstrations of the validity and in some cases superiority of solving enterprise problems in ways other than relocation. I mean, okay, I forget why I selected that passage, but that just strikes me as wishful thinking. The magical co-ops are going to come out of nowhere and just compete with the capitalists and beat them. That's not how reality works. There was a cooperative movement in Britain for the longest time, and it was actually relatively successful. It was relatively successful. And you know what? Britain's not a socialist nation. Not till they put Corbyn in there. It's not a socialist nation, even though they had a relatively successful cooperative movement. You know why? The thing is, co-ops can survive, but it requires that the workers be willing to make a sacrifice in their own incomes in order to invest in technology that will allow them to stay competitive. So that's the problem, is that capital is constantly lowering prices of commodities by investing in labor-saving technology. And so in order to stay in business, you need to compete with this general trend. The workers will have to voluntarily be exploited, essentially, in order to make these investments. And even vote to make themselves redundant in some cases. It's not even labor-saving technologies. It's just market pressures in general. They're going to have to like reduce the price of their labor, that sort of thing, in order to be competitive in the market against larger capitalist firms. I'm trying to try and to like relate the market pressures to the organic composition of capital or whatever, but that's a whole other argument. We shouldn't be too structuralist, though, because for what he's saying to work, the same pressures don't have to disappear. All that he is articulating that he really wants is that workers be able to make those choices and that this is true workers would make those calculations differently again overall like in the long run it will probably get mondragonized that's fair too you can't be a marxist and not say that right but there is also a contradiction as well besides the rising organic composition contradiction but if you put forward this idea that the worker should have everything that he produces at the point of production there is going to be a structural thing where people may not be as inclined to reinvest or to put aside extra money in this or that over the course of the long term because i've been saving up to get a fucking sweet ride and if i have to get that next year instead of this year uh that sucks you know? yeah these are all like the critiques of councilism and syndicalism all being beautifully made who else is trying to sell councilism in America as a popularizer. Like, I keep bringing it back to this. Yeah, but councilism is wrong, so it shouldn't be popularized. Right, 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 (laughs) Donald. But, like, who else is making a kind of, like, left communist Marxist analysis very accessible? Ooh, you're going to get so many people mad by calling him a left communist. I'm sorry. Like, honestly... Uh, He's very economistic, and this is a guy who's actually made kind of an impact on Marxist economics when there's all those debates over single system and, like, dual systems theory. You know, Wolf was involved with one of the first, or I think the first, conceptual understanding of, like, a single system reading, like, 
Yeah, yeah, and Wolf wrote a, he wrote a book on the USSR that uses his own epistemology that he develops from structuralist Marxism, but, like, somehow... He's a genuine post-structuralist economist. Yeah, he tries to take structuralist Marxism, but get rid of the, like, primary nature of relations of production, and instead make it all part of, like, this mediated totality. Yeah. It critiqued the Soviet Union from that standpoint. I disagree with him, but he's an interesting theorist. There are very few economists in general that care to go through epistemology or general philosophy of science. There's actually a lot going on in his work. I imagine that having lived through the 80s and 90s and the 2000s and till now, he has probably a lot of simmering hard Marxist resentments that have not gone away. But he's, you know, angled himself to try to talk to these people that are, as you're saying, idiots. You know? <laughs> like, but I, I, I actually think that there's a problem with the way that we have this conversation, because I don't think people that fail to notice Marxist economics or, you know, get into the abstruse debates on value are stupid. I don't think a lot of the people that Richard Wolff is trying to talk to are stupid. They put their energies, probably wisely, into things they can more readily control. And I, I don't think there's a lot to be gained by looking down on people who try to access this audience by talking like a, quote, special ed teacher. It's pretty important that we reach people that are basically illiterate in something that, in, in instruments that we can play in our sleep. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, but that's not my issue. Yeah, he's very accessible and readable, and that's good. And it's hard to misconstrue him. But the issue is that he's wrong, that he's spreading confusion. And I think that the comparison to the German-Dutch left tendency of left communism, I think, makes sense. Because they really do see the problem of the Soviet Union as being based in a lack of worker self-management. They see that as just kind of panacea that would fix everything. You know, especially with people like Anton Panikuk later on. But he's very different from the Italian left communists. I would actually say that if I wanted to introduce someone to Marxism, I think Amadeo Bordiga's text that we read is actually a better rendition of what Marxism actually is than what Richard Wolff is selling here. I forget. Did he defend totalitarianism in that one? Is that Which one is that? <laughs> I mean, he, he definitely defends totalitarianism. Yeah, I, I wouldn't show that to fucking anyone that I wanted to be a communist. Totalitarianism is a reactionary concept uh, invented uh, by... Anyway... I disagree with Bordiga's whole like take on democracy, but as far as debunking the idea of factory socialism and debunking this idea that socialism is about the worker having the full access to their value, Bordiga actually gets that right at least and doesn't f further spread this main confusion about socialism that I think needs to be challenged. But Donald, is, is that the main confusion about socialism? Or are the points that Wolf says is like, hey, this whole idea that there was planning and that there was national property, that was thought to be enough. Are you sure that isn't the things that we're most confused in regards to socialism? Statification? And no, like, no, the problem is, is that people respond to the problem of nationalization not being enough by seeing worker self-management as being the solution. But the problem is that it's not the solution. I agree that it's more complicated than that, but I think that 
in general, he picks the things that are the biggest misconceptions in socialism has an inadequate answer. When you say he's spreading confusion, you know, have you listened to Democracy Now? Have you listened to the rest of the programming on KPFA, that economic update with Richard Wolff shares? Like, to say that he's spreading confusion in particular. Yes, the worldview he's putting out there is a bit incoherent. It's left communism for the New Deal. You know, it doesn't make sense in an important way. The dude's a post-structuralist, so, you know, it doesn't have to add up for him. I mean, I would say most leftist academics are spreading confusion. I would say the first half is a good political pamphlet on the problems of the day. The second half, when he actually offers his solutions to the problems, is not. And that's what's frustrating. Again, to return to my original David Icke metaphor, you listen to David Icke and be like, yeah, these elites, they're fucking decrepit and they're ruining everything and a lot of them are probably pedophiles. That's pretty good, right up until he starts talking about how they're shape-shifting vampires and the whole world's a hologram. Because there were, there were people, when this started to come in, people who, who were kind of into my stuff uh, up to that point, which was kind of regular fight, well, it was a bit strange because it was all the way the war was manipulated by a few people, but it was all kind of regular stuff. Um, and then I, I came across with this stuff and it was like, out of the way don't mention the reptiles, they'll just laugh at you again. I said, I know. Right. <laughs> this probably has gotten reasonable people to look into Marxism more. Richard Wolff, by being such a popular Marxist, is just, you know, driving people away from a more correct Marxism. Same with David Harvey. Sure, sure, yeah. I would love them to fucking read Ticton. Yes, that, that yes would be I actually think that. I think if people read Mike McNair, or if they read Ticton, or if, if someone like that, or Robert Brenner. And we can sit here and list superior Marxists all day. But basically, this guy is our LaSalle, uh, for better or for worse. And, you know, and like LaSalle, like LaSalle had his usefulness. It was more helpful that he had access to a lot of money through his wife, which I think a big reason why Marx and Engels associated with him or tolerated him. Mm. Marx cried for a whole week. Marx didn't talk to anyone for a whole week when LaSalle died. Damn. That's how tore up he was about it. Damn. LaSalle was a hero. And like, that's one thing, like, LaSalle was Marx's boy. Even though Marx devastated him in critiques and fought against him. And called him the N-word. <laughs> they were, like, the kind of guys who would go get a drink and, like, hang out and smoke cigars. Yeah, I mean, I'm shitting on Richard Wolf pretty hard here, but, you know, this isn't in the enemy camp. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying we need to drive up to his house and beat him up like we do that piece of shit dog Gorbachev. You know, this is somebody who is on our side. And, you know, he is actually doing some good to a certain extent and spreading stuff. Yeah. But there are problems. And, like, are we really going to sit here and go soft on this dude on this podcast? No. On this of all no, places? No, no, but we have four people that are going hard on, honestly, parts of the book that we weren't asked to read. We need someone like Lexi to keep us in check, I think. There needs to be some kind of opposition person. Otherwise, it would just be like us curb stomping richard wolf yeah 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 circle jerk i don't want to just sit here and just, just talk about how bad richard wolf is because i think that lexi is you know being a pretty good advocate yeah as your lawyer richard wolf <laughs> i suggest you play up your theoretical credentials so, <laughs> <laughs> it is true that richard wolf has his own methodology of marxism even that's not even marxism if you look deeper into his work and so it makes sense that his point of view is so far away from what we see as orthodox marxism but it's because he kind of like takes this weird reading of Althusser and combines it with like syndicalism and then comes out with his weird Lasallian co-op type thing. It's a kind of council communist attitude that's not uncommon in critical theory. 
Well, it's a reason Chomsky praises him and then he wrote an introduction for Panic Hooks Workers' Councils. There's something there to that. If you look on the first page, if you look at the first letter of each line, it actually spells out pancakes. <laughs> so there you go. Chomsky also endorsed Lula, so he's got a pretty broad sector of what he'll sign off on, I mean. Well, that's the thing, though. That's why I'm saying these kind of, like, ultra-leftist figures, they can be appropriated by reformists. Yeah. And be like, oh, you know, he was a victim of Bolshevik totalitarianism who wanted workers to have, you know, self-directed enterprises. Like, you know, we're going to have in our social democracy, that's actually capitalism. And so they can appropriate these kind of figures, like Panic Hook, even... To be fair, tankies say the same thing about Trotsky. Any kind of left opposition to, like, Stalin can be appropriated by the capitalists in order to frame a narrative about, like, oh, the Soviet Union was so repressive and evil, and, yeah, you, you can frame that argument in, like, a weird tanky way. That's why I wouldn't, like, go hard on that, mm. personally. So I'll have you know that Richard Wolff has the opinion that the Soviet Union was an extractive class society, but that Lenin understood the problems of Marxism better than a lot of his successors and puts this out in a book to grandma. You know what I mean? Just saying. Oh, yeah, I understand that he has a grasp of the Soviet Union that's not idiotic. I've read, like, summaries of his book because Marcel Vanderlinden talks about it in his classic book. And I would read a couple of chapters because I got the PDF of it, saying oh, this is a serious book in Soviet debate that I need to actually finish reading, coming to think of it, because it needs to be engaged with. But at the same time, I just think that he sees the problems of the Soviet system, and he just thinks that they could have been solved with worker self-management. Well, you know who else did that? Tito. And did it really work in the end? No, because there's greater social contradictions than just the authority relations on the factory floor. There's the whole question of nationalities. There's the whole question of bureaucracy in the state. There's a whole question of the division of labor and the extent to which society is truly planned. And so I don't think Richard Wolff is offering a real alternative to the problems of the Soviet Union, even if he has, you know, a theoretically insightful analysis that, you know, we can't even take aspects from. At the end of the day, Richard Wolff, in the words of Mike McNair about the counselors, he asks the right question and gives a wrong answer. Yep. Baby's first Marxism. Baby's first critique of uh, the capitalist system. Yeah. Because they're babies. They're adult, <laughs> infantile children. <laughs> Jake is like, they have infantile disorder. Yeah, Jake is geez. being like the true Leninist vanguardist here. He's like, Richard Wolf is trade union consciousness. Can I say, though, there's a great like political filmmaker. He directed Z, and he made a film in 2013 called The Capital. And it's about this French financial executive. And he throughout the movie, like he'll address the camera directly. And at the end, like he basically does some shit. And it works out and makes him a ton of money. And like, there's hints throughout the movie that he knows what he's doing is awful. Like, his uncle's a Trotskyist and he tells him he's like selling his country away and he's a piece of shit. <laughs> and like, his dad gets mad at him and tries to defend him. And he's talking to his dad. He's like, Uncle has a point, dad. But anyway, so at the end of the movie, people are celebrating. He turns to the camera and he just goes, They're children, grown up children. They're happy now. And they'll keep celebrating until it all collapses. And then the movie ends. Wow. Yeah. So sometimes I think about that, like, yeah, like, you know, you see people in that. Yeah, these are grown-up children. <laughs> so basically, you're taking the classic infantile Leninist insult on Richard Wolff. Clarifying the correct way of scientifically looking at capitalism is not an easy task. 
So many people turn to anti-capitalist consciousness through basically this David Icke structurally anti-Semitic narrative. Yeah. And I don't think trying to frame things as like, well, really the big problem is the problem of workers versus managers, and that's what we have to overcome. I don't think that really gets to the core of you know the issues of oppression and state violence are you, that are you calling richard wolf structurally anti-semitic no but i'm saying that he just is you know he kind of offers a populist sort of he is the literal leftist equivalent of david ike and i've said that multiple times i don't know why people <laughs> haven't taken me up on that so the blame for all of this is really not to be found with the individual borrower or for that matter even with the individual banker we have a system that worked in such a way as to drive the masses of people to borrow what they shouldn't and to drive the corporate sector to invest and lend in ways they shouldn't. The fault is in a system that makes people behave in ways they all come to regret. His vision of class struggle is literally like these people who are capitalist and bosses just like have this power that they have through economic... That's the IWW line though. I mean, that's, a lot of people say that shit. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's it's very syndicalist, but it's also basically just promote a Lasallian platform. And so it just shows so yeah. much how these kind of ultra-leftist ideas can easily be used by social democrats to promote a reformed capitalism. And obviously, Leninist and Trotskyist and Stalinist ideas are also reappropriated by social democrats. So yep. not, obviously, everyone is guilty of this, but ultra-leftists aren't an exception. And I think the, the the weird kind of comparison of the councilism and Wolf does kind of get to a, a truth. You know, I, I sort of came from this, like, democracy now, sort of left liberal, leaning towards radical. Yes, same here. Same here. I don't know how to describe it. Granola? Like, like Chomsky, yeah. Znet type yeah. stuff. All the websites like Truth Dig. I send money to democracy now sometimes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I was really into Chris Hedges and, like, a few other people, and I got into that, and then I went online on to Left Book expecting to, like, you know, have pleasant debates with people and that sort of thing. I was getting into, like, early American socialism, things like that. And then I met, like, ultra-leftists online, and they viciously bullied me, and they continually did so, constantly. I eventually developed a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. To the point where they bullied me so much that I wanted to be them. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like we can do that with this podcast. <laughs> we can, yes, exactly. Exactly. We can do this oh, with Rosa. the podcast. Oh, oh, I mean, Rosa. yeah, like, you know, people don't like to say it, but that's what's good about bullying. Is that, yeah, I mean, it, it destroys some people, but it, other people, it makes them stronger. And it makes them as cool as the bullies. <laughs> is that right? Is that right, Jake? <laughs> Is this, is this your backdoor argument for social Darwinism here? You gotta weed them out. I think the nuanced approach to this is that sometimes you just have to, like, be savage in your critique. Sometimes people make it too personal. A lot of the old socialist debates, you know, it gets way too personal at some points. I mean, we don't need to, you know, justify that. But sometimes, you know, you do have to basically just lay down a savage critique of the people who are falsifying Marxism to yeah, the public. that's fine. But at the same time, like... The ultra-left tactic of bullying, it just makes people cynical and eventually either leave leftism or 
become more realistic politically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it doesn't actually work that tactic of bullying. No, it does work. It's good. It gets you out of leftism and makes you oh more realistic. God. It gets it gets you out of like <laughs> soft leftism, but it further entrenches you in like a harder leftism, basically. It doesn't get you out of leftism. The life patterns that we're talking about that most people think of as being left wing are something that is unsustainable for an adult that has to work. So yeah, you're telling me. Well, yeah, the whole like uh, occupation tactic of just like oh, like oh we're gonna all occupy literally is only possible for people who don't have to work a nine to five. Mm-hmm. And because the left is so structurally designed around protest culture, it's basically made to exclude proletarians, except when mainstream unions can get on board. But guys, guys, what if we could work at the place we were doing socialism, and then every day we're fighting the system and we're keeping all the surplus. That we produce, so we can afford that sweet ride. What What if we had meetings? Well, that's the argument for co-ops is that it allows you to have an infrastructure to have a professional like layer of party members, people who are guaranteed employment by the party, who are able to be professional organizers, and that's something that I think is essential for any party. Let's send this to Richard Wolf. We'll hold an olive branch and we'll start a Kickstarter yeah, to start yeah. a like communist dispensary. And we'll all basically like grow weed, and we'll distribute the surplus amongst ourselves. Okay, all right. Yeah, and then we'll, that's how we'll all—that's uh, how we'll start to overcome capitalism. Okay, I'm with you. I mean, I'm all about forming a weed co-op. If we could do that and fund like a communist venture with that, that would be awesome. Communist ergoism. Make it happen. Yeah, and we'll start out by doing it in a state where it's not legal yet. Oh, that's oh, a great shit. idea. That's where you make the real profits, man. I don't know. The DEA might be listening yeah. in on this yeah, now. Yeah, cash so and carry, baby. Careful. That's you know that none of that goes on on your tax. Next time we talk about this, it's got to be on signal. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. I don't think co-ops are useless. He's talking to the yo. Let's start a t-shirt company, bro. All you need is a screen printer. And... <laughs> yeah. Listen, like, so this might not be true anymore because it's been ten fucking years, over ten years now since like the financial crisis. But like. Back when, you know, Wolf was really starting to get some attention and he was doing speaking tours, I think he might still be, I'm not sure. But there was a point after the crisis where there's a lot of people out of work and there was some genuine, like, proletarian or, like, petty bourgeois, declasse kind of interest in, like, radical solutions to things as things happen. And basically, there was almost nothing for them. And Wolf in that environment was a breath of fresh air. The wolf was actually something like radical Marxist theory that was addressing itself, you know, culturally, basically, to American life. The confrontation with the inability of capitalism to deliver the goods was postponed by having Americans work way more hours than other people in other countries and by having American workers take on a level of debt no working class ever anywhere had ever seen before. But we've now run out. We can't do more physical hours of work, and we can't borrow any more money because we're unable to pay what we've already borrowed. And we're now going to have to face it. And I think what we're going to see is an American working class that is now going to rediscover class and realize that they have to question a system that works this way. They're going to demand fundamental changes, and when they do, and as they do, 
They will rediscover the language of class, relearn it from the working people in other countries who never forgot it, and it will re-enter the discourse and debates of American society uh, and probably with a vengeance. Literally anybody who wasn't going, are we giving the banks enough money? Like that was radical at that time. Right. So boomer panic, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's like interesting. Yeah. Uh, boomer panic, the LaSalle for the era of the democracy now. Left. Yeah. With all the faults that comes with. But also somehow the boomer panic. And the benefits. <laughs> um, although I don't know if I'm going to cry uh, when this dude, this dude dies. <laughs> For every tear you don't shed, Jake, I'm going to shed three. I'm definitely going to be sad when Wolf goes. That's it for this week. Just a reminder that this episode was chosen by a Patreon supporter of the Bonapartist tier. Along with getting to pick a custom episode, you can listen to us record live, chill with us on Discord, or just get episodes early, with options starting from $1 a month. Take the fast track to an FBI watch list at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on the iTunes or Google Play stores, or on Stitcher. The easiest and freest way to help us out is to leave a good review on iTunes. It costs zero dollars a month but its effect is priceless next week the gang upholds gonzalo thought with a shining new episode of swampside chats keep your boots clean comrades <laughs>